This week on the podcast, Brother Juan Lopez speaks on themes from the book of Exodus. When I think about all the stories, I know I just look around here and I'm just reminded of stories of what God has done in, in each of your lives and how he's healed from diseases and how he's brought from drug addictions and how he's set free from so much. And I don't get to think about that. I don't get to think about how my job provides freedom for somebody or delivers somebody or gives them hope for tomorrow. But when we come to church and we worship God and we feel Him moving into this place, it's something that I can get excited about. So I'm just glad to be here with you tonight. I don't take it for granted that I get this opportunity to minister with the young adults. It's a very much an honor. And we've been talking about different books. I'm, I'm in the book of Exodus. This is out of the order of the books that we've been going through, but due to some changes in schedules, this is kind of how it had to go. And, you know, there's a, a small group out of this group that's rising up, John, that's, uh, that's uh, feeling like and defending Sister Troxel, saying that she always gets the tough lessons. And it's always rough for Sister Troxel. So we're going to go ahead and publicly say that our next lesson series is going to be on the prophets. And Sister Troxel can pick first which prophet she would like, as long as it's not Jonah. Then she can pick anybody else she wants. So you have free reign, uh, as long as it comes very quick before everybody else starts turning theirs in. So you've done a great job teaching on some very difficult lessons, sis. And so rightfully so that they're rising up on your behalf. Amen. So the book of Exodus contains so much of history's richest moments, great accomplishments. I'm going to give up on the fact of saying that this is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It seems like every time we pick a topic, if it's a character, by the time I'm done devoting the necessary hours to preparing for a lesson, I walk away from that lesson thinking that this person is one of my favorite Bible characters. It just happened with Paul and Barnabas. Um, Barnabas became like up here at the top. Uh, Kevin taught and Moses was up at the top. I didn't even study for that lesson. It was Kevin's lesson. Um, I'm here in Exodus now and, and Exodus I would say is one of my favorite books in the Bible. But you know, just you got to stop somewhere. And if this continues on, next every time I get up here to speak, it's going to be about my favorite character or my favorite book. And so, so it doesn't look crazy. I'm just going to stop and I'm just going to say that I've enjoyed so much reading through the book of Exodus, preparing for this lesson. And there is so much that can be taught from this book. And I am completely, I, I, just don't, I didn't even know how to approach it. Everyone else that is taught on an overview of a book has done such a fantastic job. Kevin, Hannah, Brother Kilman, they've just done fabulous kind of stepping back and giving this great overview of books that just entailed so much information and so much detail. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, man, if I could just do that, if I could just take that overview, but I'm horrible at that. And so I try to make a compromise with myself. Here's the compromise. I put a lot of material together in notes. 2,605 words, my iPad says, in notes. Now, what that means is that the compromise was that I'm not going to attempt to go through all these notes. 
but that I've kind of outlined it for myself to teach this lesson, but the notes, because we post them online, will be available kind of in their entirety. So it's still very short of everything that could come from this book, but it is a lot more than what I'm going to teach on tonight. And so Exodus. In Exodus, you have the outgoing of Israel from Egypt, an entire race of people. They're suddenly being freed from generations of shackles, of bondage. 400 years has went by. Depending on how you look at it, 400, 430 years has went by, and generation after generation has rose up in slavery. Taskmasters, cracking whips, working to build houses that don't belong to them, sweat just pouring down their face day after day, day after day. And when in Exodus, we get to see those people set free. You have the giving of the law and the enunciating of the Mosaic Covenant, the building of the marvelous symbolic structure, the tabernacle. The life of Moses is just interwoven into all of this. We could divide Exodus up into three sections. You would have the Exodus itself. We see the power of God, the liberty for His people. You could go next to the law. We see the holiness of God, which demands responsibility of His people. And next we have the tabernacle, and we see the wisdom of God, which grants privilege to His people. The Exodus marked the beginning of a new life. In Exodus 12, 2, we read, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first of the year to you. It's the, they're changing. God is changing. It marks a new life in such a way that God tells them that whatever month it is right now, stop. I've brought you out. You have a new life in such a way that this month becomes the first month of months for you. In other words, if it's April, it's no longer April. It's January. This is absolutely brand new life. You're starting over. I brought you out of the bondage. I've delivered you, and I'm giving you a brand new beginning. Paul said it this way. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This, for us, starts a brand new life. The Old Testament is full types and shadows. Egypt was a type, a shadow, a mere image of sin, of worldliness. Everything that was contrary to the purpose and to the will of God that could bind you would be represented in Egypt. So God is saying to them that I have delivered you from that which was holding you back. I have taken the hands of them off of you. I have pried their fingers back. You're no longer living in fear. You're no longer bound by these things. Whatever it was that holds you in a place that I don't want you to be is now removed. And this is new. And so in the life of believers today. When we come into contact with Christ, when we meet Jesus for who He is, when we meet Him as our uh, Redeemer, 
When we meet Him as our sacrifice, when we meet Him as our Lord, and He washes away our sins, and He fills us with the gift of the Holy Ghost, we become new creatures, and everything else is gone. Today would start a new life. I still remember what it was like to walk out of Calvary Tabernacle after being washed in the waters of baptism. And I don't forget at all what it was like to be at the altar here at Calvary Tabernacle when God filled me with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I promise you, when I walked away from that, as many of you have as well, you walk away from that brand new. Today starts something different. When I walk into work tomorrow, I don't have to be, look, smell, talk, walk like I did before I experienced this. Why? Because God has given me the beginning of a new life. It meant the beginning of a new liberty. In 13.3 it says, And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. In other words, you are no longer bound and you never have to be again. You're no longer bound and you never have to be again. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ had made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. When God sets us free, we are no longer given over to those things we don't have to be free for a moment we're not just free for a week a month or a year but when God delivers us when it's his strength and his might that goes before us and he brings us into liberty and he sets us free we never have to go back the Egyptians followed they wanted to get them back They desired to bring them back. They wanted them to be enslaved. There was no one to do their dirty work. There was no one to build their houses. No one to tend to their crops. They desired to go and to retrieve the Hebrews. And God wiped them out in the Red Sea. God's plan is not to set us free, only that we become entangled again to the yoke of bondage. We don't have to. We're absolutely free from that, and we never have to go back. It also marked the beginning of a new assurance, chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land concerning which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it for an inheritance, and I am the Lord. What God is saying to them here is, I'm not just delivering you to leave you. I didn't just break you free from the bondage of the Egyptians for you to be something in and of yourself. The entire purpose of God bringing the Hebrews out of the bondage from the Egyptians was so that they could once again be his people and he could be their Lord. People miss this a lot in this day and age. They walk into a church maybe for their first time or they start attending services 
And as they're going to church, they like what they see. They like what they hear. It, it starts to make sense to them that they shouldn't be spending all their money on cigarettes or on booze. And it makes sense to them with the statistics of STDs that they shouldn't be sleeping around and, and having these lifestyles outside of marriage. And so they start to buy into what they're hearing from the preacher. They start to buy into what they're hearing from the congregation, people that encourage them before service, after service, maybe at altar calls. And they just start to believe that and they start to take those initial steps where they pray and it's powerful when you just start to cry out to God it's amazing how quick he responds to you it's just instantaneous it's not like you have to pray for weeks or months it's not like I have to get all cleaned up before he's going to hear but a crackhead in a crack house who has just had enough can cry out God can hear them and he can minister but people do just that they come to church They hear a little bit about the goodness, they feel a little bit about who God is, and they pray, and God does something. He ministers. He may take away addictions, He may uh, help them find a good job, and and they accept that. And then they start walking throughout life, and they're like, you know what, I love God, and uh, God is good, and and I go to church on Sundays, and that feels like enough, and, and I do pray sometimes, and God did help me, and God did break me free from this. He did help me get a good job. And they just walk throughout life like that's all that there is. And God did not intend to bring people out of bondage just to see them wandering on their own. He desires to be our leader. He desires to be our almighty. He desires to be the one who is sufficient for every need. He did not just bring them out of Egypt to wander. But he had a purpose. There was a new assurance that I am delivering you, that once again you are mine and I am yours. Here's a question. And I don't want, no one has to raise their hands, but think about the question. Do you desire to be used of God? Question one. Do you desire to be used of God? Question two, do you want to do great things for the Lord? I think probably a very common answer in this room is yes. I want to do something for God. Yes, I want to do great things for the Lord. So the next obvious question is going to be, how do I? How do I put myself in a position where God can use me. We look at Moses and we, we look at his life and we're like blown away by the fact that God used him to do something so magnificent. And when God called Moses, it wasn't like he called the guy who, who spoke so eloquently. That was one of Moses' excuses. It wasn't like he called the guy that had the greatest deal of faith because he felt comfort in not just the Lord going with him, but Aaron. So Moses wasn't chosen by God because he had this whole list of just everything that seemed to fit of what God was going to need to deliver them out of bondage. But I think if we take a close look at Moses, we can see exactly what it is. There is this one characteristic that Moses had, just one, that made him able that made him a choice, someone that God would look to and call to do such a great work. And this same characteristic is found in every one 
that God has used in a major and great way. Not just in Bible history. You read about missionaries, you're going to find the same characteristic in them. Here it is. If you desire that which God desires, you make yourself available to be used. Align your passions and ambitions with the Lord's and instantly you become a willing vessel. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Moses saw an Egyptian smite a Hebrew. Exodus 2.11 and 12 it says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses, long before God ever called him, had enough. He got up, he looked out, he said, I see my people, they're being oppressed. I see them being taken advantage of. And he saw a certain situation and something rose up inside of Moses that just said, enough is enough. I'm tired of seeing them bound. I'm tired of seeing them taken advantage of. I just can't take it. And unfortunately for Moses, came with that rage and anger. And in a moment, he killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. But look what Exodus 3, 9, and 10 says. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is coming to me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses wanted the Hebrews free long before God spoke to him in the burning bush. And that is the key. If we can pray and seek God and allow Him to speak to us so that we can start to have burdens for things, through prayer God speaks to us and and draws us and and we start to feel uh, drawn in prayer towards certain things. For me, it's been some jail ministry. It's been some young adult ministry. And that's because I've allowed myself to be exposed to that. Brother Sleva says it this way. Exposure brings a burden. Exposure brings a burden because, here's why. Because when you open your eyes to something, then you're allowing yourself to feel the need. You're starting to feel. You know, someone told me today, this is hilarious. Is he not in here? Okay, he's not in here. I won't say his name anyways. Um. He told me today, he said, he said, I am absolutely addicted to hunting season, addicted to deer hunting. He got a, a new bow this year, super stoked. Don't even try to put who this is together. But uh, try, uh, got a new bow. He's excited about it. He's already killed a deer, and, and it's just had a lot of time. He's went out there, and he sat down in the deer stands and been hours and hours and hours there. And to him, he just arrived such a peace. I would totally disagree. I think it's got to be the most boring thing in the world. But this gentleman thinks it is wonderful. And he said to me, he said, all jokes aside, I have a new 
a, a new grace, a new mercy for those who suffer addiction. Now, he was being 100% serious. He wasn't trying to be sarcastic. He was saying, I know now more so than I knew before about what people feel like when they are addicted. And he said, this is minus a chemical addiction. This is all about the, the, the doing it, the enjoying it, the, the being there. It has nothing to do with the chemical addiction. And so he says, I, I exposed myself to something that I enjoy so much that I am drawn to it. I would rather be there than it's tough for me to work right now, he said to me. I should be out in a deer stand. And I'm like, okay. So, so I got his point. And having been a former addict myself, I understood exactly what he was saying. And I appreciated that because a lot of people walk around and they say, you know what, I don't understand how anybody could ever backslide. I don't understand how anybody could ever be a drug addict. I don't understand how anybody could ever be a porn addict. Until you have experienced the power of addiction, you may never know that. And this gentleman's just talking about deer season. (laughs) Good Lord. It pales in comparison to what addiction really is. It's not even close, but it is a little bit of an addiction. But the exposure opens our eyes. It allows something to flood in. And it tugs on us, and it tugs on us. Now, I'll tell you the truth. If you expose yourself to lots of things, you will have all kinds of burden. It's not just something you like or enjoy. I've taken guys who have grown up in church. um, I don't mean this in a racist way, but just purebred white guys coming to a jail service. And it's all Hispanics and and uh, African-Americans, and we're all in service, and, and Brother Sleva's leading worship, and everything's great, and I'm looking at these guys who don't fit in in any way, shape, or form from IBCs or IBC students, and I just look at them, and it's like God moves on them, and they feel a connection and, and a desire to minister in such a way. It just happens like that, all because they've exposed themselves to such a need. So my point is that you can, you can open a door when you pray, when you seek after God, and allow a burden to come in. And when you allow that to come in, then God, when there is a need for something to be done that aligns with that burden, when God's will, purpose, and plan can include that burden of yours, then he can reach right out and grab whoever it is and pull them right into it. Moses happened just like that. He desired for his people to be free. He didn't want to see them in bondage. Yes, he overacted by killing the Egyptian. But when God wanted to bring them out, he went right to the guy who wanted to see them out and called Moses and used him. Next section uh, that we would look at in the book of Exodus is the law. In Exodus 19, 4 through 6, Exodus 19, 4 through 6, it says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. 
These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So here's a question when I'm, we're getting into the law. We could go through so much about the law and what every one of them were. We could go directly to the Ten Commandments and somebody could teach. I think we did teach for weeks and weeks and weeks on the Ten Commandments alone. But here's what I want to look at. I want to get more of an understanding of what the law in general was, the purpose of it. So here's a question. What is meant here when he says, my covenant? It is mentioned without explanation, like it's something that the people should already know. Now, if we're going to figure that out, we just got to kind of look back in Scripture. We're only in the book of Exodus. We don't have far to go. And let's look back and just say, where else was covenant used and we only find two places before this in the book of Exodus. The first one is in 2.24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then the second time is in 6.4-5. And I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. In both these references, the word remembered looks back to the Abrahamic covenant. And between Genesis 27, where we kind of find out the, the criteria of that, so to speak, and Exodus 2.24, there's no other mention anywhere of a divine covenant. So when God says to Israel at Sinai, keep my covenant, the reference is to the Abrahamic covenant. So now I want to look at, let's just get into understanding the law just a little bit here. For let's make sure, okay, so Genesis 15, 6, the ground of Abraham's acceptance was his faith. So before we can really understand what the law was, the Mosaic covenant, what was getting ready to come across, We'll make sure that we understand the Abraham's covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. And that was on the ground of Abraham's acceptance. It was his faith that brought this. Abraham's part in keeping the covenant was simply a sincere continuance in faith and uprightness. It says, walk before me and be thou perfect or sincere or upright, and I will make my covenant between me and thee. So the first covenant made between Abraham and the Lord was one simply based on faith, a reliance on God. I will trust you. I will obey you. I will walk with you. I will allow this conscience you've put within me to do its job and direct and guide me. The giving of the law, which came next, did not intend to change over from this faith basis of the Abrahamic covenant to a work basis. Now here, I got to admit, this is where, this is so sad. Do I have to admit it? I do now. So this is where I came, I'm reading this, and I read this uh, in a commentary several times, over and over and over again, because I wanted to make sure that I was understanding it right before I put it down in my notes and decided to teach it. But I always had this mindset, maybe I was the only guy, and you can make me feel that way, that's fine. 
I always had this mindset that the law was there. It was these rules. It was these regulations. And everything about the law had to be followed to the T. This was their relationship between the people of God and God after the law was given, that this was just it. Here's the ordinances. Here's, here's the rule one through rule 300. Here's the Ten Commandments, and you just follow these. This is your relationship with me. Now, why I thought that, I don't know, because when you look at the tabernacle and you study it, which we spent months studying it here in this class, it would probably dismiss that. But in the back of my mind, I always distinguished back then separate from here because now we are living by faith. It's written on our hearts. But when I got to reading this and I I looked at everything this gentleman was saying, he was saying that the law was never intended to, actually the law was never intended to replace. It was never the Abrahamic covenant and then there was this slice in history and then here starts the law. But it was meant to be a continuance of the faith-based covenant that was already made. And that to me meant a lot because I was always confused about that always thinking about the rules and the law and I've got family members my goodness I don't know if you have those family members but when it comes to arguing scripture they always take me to the old testament they don't even know there's a new testament best I can tell it's always the old testament well how come God did this how come there was this rule with this how come he killed these people how come and it just goes over and over and over again finally I tell you most time I just throw the white flag up and I'm done because these guys don't even know what they're asking. They just read something in Scripture or on the Internet, and they just throw it at you, throw it at you. They don't want to hear truth. With this understanding, with myself being enlightened and really grasping the fact that this Old Testament had a lot to do with faith, that it was, it was more so the fault of the Israelites, the people of God, who made this shift in their minds and in their hearts to rule-following rather than faith, because a faith in God, like Abraham had, took Abraham from his homeland walking to a place he didn't know where he was going. So Israel, after given the law, if they had the faith that their father Abraham had, they could have obeyed those laws just because they were living by faith for God, just because they were loving him. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, Keep my commandments. He did not say, if you keep my commandments, that shows me that you love me. Because you can keep ordinances, you can keep laws, you can keep commandments without ever being in love with the lawgiver or the protector or the ruler. And so it is faith-based. The law and all of its pieces would work You could take your mind away from, did I overstep this bound? Did I overstep that bound? Did I do this? If you just backed up and said, I love God so much that I just want to do whatever it is he is asking me to do. And I just want to to be a part. I get joy. Here's where it changes. I get joy in being obedient to God and following the leading of his presence. And when you get that joy and you start to enjoy it like you enjoy other stuff, like basketball, like football, like soccer, can you say that I come to church and I love coming to church as much as I love watching a football game? It's a question. It's a real question. As much as I love playing cards, 
pick whatever it is that you enjoy in your spare time that you do to bring joy to yourself, whatever it is, and ask yourself, do I love the things of God as much as I love that? And here's how you gauge it, because it's easy to say, yes, do I enjoy the things of God as much as I enjoy these other things? Do I get as happy about prayer as I get about fill in the blank? But that's what God was trying to get across. The laws were not meant to to do all of what I thought they were doing. They were just a continuance in saying, man, I'm showing you why the law was given. So if it's a continuance of faith-based covenant into this Mosaic covenant, this law, then why was the law given? To provide a standard of righteousness. No longer was a periodic oral communication sufficient. It became necessary that the people would be constituted a nation, they could become a theocracy, and to furnish a written and permanent standard of reality, expressing the divine idea for character and conduct. So God was sharing with them the expectations, letting them see what their faith and action would look like so that they would know that. It came so that it could expose and identify sin. Just as solid blocks become black when silhouetted against a bright background, so sin becomes at once shown up, sharply marked off against the light of the law. Paul says, The law entered that the offense might abound or become obvious so that they could see what things God did not like. It was easy when he showed them all the things that they were supposed to do. It became very clear of all the things they were not supposed to do. Uh, By the law is the knowledge of sin. I had not known sin, but by the law in Romans. The The law made sin known to them. Interesting, the whole relationship and covenant between God and His people in the Old Testament. So much that I just can't go over all of it. Let's go to the next one. To reveal divine holiness. The law revealed divine holiness. The truth being at once suggested that the love of God must be safeguarded by a recognition of His power and His holiness. If all you knew about God was that He was love, and we didn't get to to look at holiness, we didn't get to see what His love looked like, and we see that in His in His laws and in righteousness and holiness. Brother Kilman will talk about it much when he says that you don't have to ask somebody if they feel like it's wrong to slaughter children or to kill a baby. Not an abortion, but a baby that's born, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old. Does anybody not know deep within their conscience that it is wrong to do those things? Yeah, they should, and that's there for a reason. But I promise you there's a lot more that's placed there that we ignore. And the law made obvious those things so that they could see them for what they were. Galatians 3.19 says, Wherefore? Then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions. I mean, basically because they would not follow their God-given conscience of wrong and right. 
So here it is expressed. The last of these three sections of Exodus is the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle, we did spend so much time. It was, that was the most enjoyable tabernacle. (laughs) You hate to even say this because I was on the, the teaching team with you guys. Lessons I've ever heard. It was very, it was very interactive. Um, I've seen some boring tabernacle lessons. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it can be really bad because there's so much information there, so much detail. Everything is types and shadows, and you can explain so much stuff, and it just goes on and on and on and on. But we did that, and we spent a long time in that. So we're gonna, I'm going to do a brief overview of the tabernacle in the next six minutes as we finish up here. So there's not going to be as much detail as it would be in breaking it down. The pattern was given to Moses during his 40 days on the mount. The plan was temporarily suspended due to Israel's lapse into idolatry, during which interval a temporary substitute for the tabernacle is provided in a tent pitched without camp. But finally the tabernacle is completed. It's erected exactly one year after the exodus, and the glory of the divine presence descends upon it. You know, it's true that Scripture devotes more room to the description of the tabernacle and its instruments than to any other single subject in Scripture, the tabernacle. When you think about that, I would say God knows what He's doing. I would say He done, He did things in a fashion for a purpose and for a reason. So we could say, well, the New Testament, we've got the New Testament, we've got uh, Acts 2.38, we've got uh, the Holy Ghost, and we do have those things. But I promise you, when we did that study through the tabernacle, I understood my relationship with Christ and who He was in a much, much clearer way than I ever had before. Because it's amazing to see God build a tabernacle in such a way, give the description in, in every piece and, and telling it to Moses and, and saying to him over and over and over again, make all things according to the pattern which was shown. The pattern, the pattern, the pattern. This is so intricate, but you've got to follow every detail. It cannot be done separate from what I gave you. And you could peel apart pieces of it. And you could explain how every piece is just pointing to something in the future or all four of the the fine linens that are draped over the top of the holies of holies and the holy place that fall across the wood on the walls and form a dwelling place. You could talk about how each one of those represents something about Christ and His protection over us and who He is to us. And it meant something to them. There was colors that were chosen. There was, there was shapes that were chosen. There was jewels that were chosen. And to the people back then, it meant so much. So much to them. The, just the way it was being explained by all the pieces that were used. And yet, he was able to do that. God did that. So that when they were building it, it was magnificent to them. And yet, here we are thousands of years later, and we can completely ignore what it meant to them, and look at what types and shadows it brings to us. And it means just as much to us today as it meant to them back then. 
I think, God, how do you do it? But you do it. So a question, if God made the effort to describe in such detail the tabernacle plan and it was absolutely necessary that it was built exactly as described and the manner in which it was to be used was only to be used in one particular way. There was a way that you entered the tabernacle. There was certain steps that had to take place. If all of that was described in such detail and there was no other option, no other way for them to participate and be God's people and act the way that he laid out the laws for them to act, then why do so many people think that that's not the case for New Testament salvation? Why do people think that, that if God was so particular in the Old Testament that when Christ came, all that went away? He gave a plan. Moses, stick to the pattern. Stick to the pattern. He even gave people that didn't have gifts of certain craftsmanship, he gave them the gifts so that they would be able to do certain tasks in building the tabernacle. Pattern, 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 pattern. It has to be done like this. Acts 2.38 says, Then Peter said unto them, This is simple. Repent. Turn away from it. Run from it. Get away from it. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. I desire the remission of sins. If I want my sins to be remitted, I must follow this pattern. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we see it played out in Scripture, Acts 2, 10, 19. You can read it. You can see it. I want to quote Jerry Dean from General Conference. He said, we don't speak in tongues because we're Pentecostal. We speak in tongues because it's in the Bible. We don't baptize in Jesus' name because we're Pentecostal. We baptize in Jesus' name because it's in the Bible. And I'll add this, we don't do anything because of some title that we put on our building or on a sign that says apostolic, that says Pentecostal, but we do what we do because it's in Scripture. There's no authority outside of the Word of God that we must be obedient to first and foremost. What does the Bible say about being saved? What does the Bible say about baptism? What does it say about repentance in the Holy Ghost? What does it say? Because whatever the Bible says, it's what I want to do. It doesn't matter what other people say. So what if there were some people that called themselves Baptists, that believed in Jesus' name, baptism, believed there was only one God, believed in the infilling of the Holy Ghost, believed in repentance, believed in living a godly life, separate, holy? Would they go to hell because they got Baptists on their church building? No. There's a pattern that God gave. He gave it in the Old Testament. It had to be followed. There was no wavering. It had to be like that. Why? It was simply because he said it had to. If there was something else outside of the Holy Ghost, if Scripture taught anything else, come on, think about where you were at when you came to this. You weren't excited about hearing about speaking in tongues? Getting dunked in water in front of everyone? For what? 
Well, we're so crying and bawling like a baby at the altar. We're supposed to be men. None of this was attractive to me. But feeling God, feeling His presence, and then opening up the Word and seeing, okay, oh, that's why they do that. Oh, that's why they do that. They don't just, that's not, they do it because it's in the Word of God. And when we have new converts and new people coming to our church, we meet them, we talk to them, this should be oozing from us. It should ooze out of us. I do what I do because God asked it, and I love God. And I just want to obey God. If someone came in and we had a meeting at General Conference and there was a resolution that says we're no longer going to baptize in Jesus' name and we're no longer going to say that you have to speak in tongues as a sign of receiving the Holy Ghost and and we're just going to pass this on through and they take a vote and that passes on through, that doesn't change the Word of God at all. You know who we belong to? him thankful for other things I'm thankful for this class for this church our pastor I'm thankful for all of that God died for our sins he made a way I'm going to jump and finish up because uh, there's just way too much here here's one thing I want to define this one thing I want to end on. Structures, it's tabernacle, outer court, holy place, holies of holies. The holies of holies served, it was to be a dwelling place for God among his people. The tabernacle was God's first dwelling place on earth. He walked with Adam and Eve. He spoke with the patriarchs. He visibly visited Abraham, but he made himself no special dwelling place on earth until the tabernacle. However, from that point forward, he's had a dwelling place with his people all along. After the tabernacle came the temple. Then the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. Then came the church, a spiritual house, a holy temple. The Bible says, builded together for an inhabitation of God through the Spirit. You know, people would bring offerings, but they were only allowed into the outer courts. No one was allowed into the holy place. It was for the priest alone. And even the priests who ministered in the holy place were not allowed into the holies of holies. Only the high priest was permitted into this inmost place. And even he, on special occasion, and after very, very specific preparation, the same applied to the temple later, That which God indwells is unspeakably sacred.
Stand with me. This was meant to be learned by God's people in the deepest way. Doesn't just allow himself to dwell just anywhere. He didn't just allow just anyone to to come in, to make sacrifices, to enter into the Holy of Holies. Because that is where He came to dwell. Such sacredness, such holiness where God dwells. Here's something interesting. And I checked this by Brother Kilman before I even brought it up. There are two Greek words in the New Testament that denote the temple. One, meaning the entire precincts or the temple buildings. The other is used only for sanctuary itself, the holy of holies. Every instance in the New Testament where the expression temple of God is used of Christian believers, either collectively or individually, the Greek word is that which refers to the holies of holies itself. What makes us special? It's not our good looks. It's not our money. What makes us separated? What makes us different? It is the power and the anointing of God that chooses to dwell within us, that makes us different from every other being on the planet. Because God doesn't just dwell anywhere, but He chose to dwell in us. There is power. And what God does. We sang earlier, there's power in the name of Jesus. There is absolute power in the name of Jesus. But if I've learned anything through studying the book of Exodus and after looking at all of its little pieces and trying to put it together in one packaged overview for us tonight, I've learned that God is a holy God. And that it means something so significant and so great that He would choose us, that He would choose people to dwell in, to fill with His Holy Spirit. And we ought not take it lightly. We ought not take it lightly. And we ought not be ashamed to talk to a new convert or someone attending church about the Holy Ghost, about the power that God gives us to be overcomers, about speaking in tongues being a part of that. Why would we be ashamed? It's not us who decided this. It's Him. He picked. He chose. And we obey. So if you'll bow your heads and we'll just close in a word of prayer. God, I appreciate so much what I feel gathered with these folks tonight. God, your presence is strong. 
I thank you for how you speak through your word in the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the law and, and everything, God, that we can read through Scripture and how that speaks so clear to us today. How we can draw such strength today. How it can clarify our walk with you and relationship with you thousands of years later just through understanding how you operated then. God, I pray that you would put upon us a special calling, a special burden that we would feel, Lord, to a freedom in you, God, that we could share everything we know, everything we've experienced without feeling uh, afraid, without feeling embarrassed, without wondering how they're going to respond, God, because what we have is not something we developed on our own. We didn't come up with it, God, by ourselves, but you gave it to us, a perfect way, a perfect pattern, and it doesn't just apply to us and our families who have grown up in this, but there's a whole world, God, hurting and broken and lost and desiring for something different, looking for answers, looking for truth, God, and you You've given it to us. We see it with our own eyes. We've experienced it with our own lives, God. Give us a boldness to go and to teach it, God. Help us, God, to have the wisdom to interact with others, to share it, to talk to them, God. Not to let people come in these doors and feel your presence at worship without just engaging them and talking to them about everything else that goes along with it. Just let us be like that. Let us have such a confidence in you that we find a comfort in doing the things you ask of us. In Jesus' name.